Reading from Psalm 2, if you're using the church Bibles, it's page 448. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So at Trinity, we want to do all that we can to preach the whole counsel of God. So we are embarking on a 10 to 12 year sermon series. That should make all of you a little bit nervous. 10 to 12 years. We want to be able to tackle all of the Psalms, of which there are 150. So we're going to do it chunks at a time, Uh, probably during the summers. And over the course of the next decade or so, we should be able to get to just about all of them. So I hope in like the year 2029 or 2030 or something like that, we can look back on this last decade and just thank the Lord for the kind gift of the book of Psalms that, uh, that it is to us. So if the Bible were a three-dimensional topographical map, you know, that has the texture to it, the highest highs and the lowest lows would be found in the book of Psalms. The Psalms give us language to exult in God. They give us language to question God in an honoring way. They give us language to explore uh, how to live faithfully within the tension of faith and doubt. They help us ask the right questions of God. They help us mourn. They help us lament. They help us rejoice in ways that we wouldn't otherwise be able to. So there will be high highs in this series, and then some weeks we're going to scratch our heads and especially beg God's Spirit to give us clarity on what exactly is being talked about in some of these psalms. Some psalms are really challenging. Some weeks, if you do this, like on a Saturday night or whatever, you're looking ahead to see whatever the text is that's going to be preached on the following Sunday. If you you do that, and I would encourage you to do that, if you do that, you'll be reading the text, and you might be like, why in the world is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to do with that? And your next question will probably probably be, how in the world is Josh going to come up with something to say about this thing that's in the Bible? And that will be your cue to pray for me. Please, please pray for me in those moments. So for this first chunk of Psalms that we're going to cover in July and August, we're going to approach it a little bit randomly. Uh, We're going to be able to cover a bunch of different kinds of Psalms in this way. There are a bunch of uh, different purposes for different Psalms that were written. And so we'll get to experience just about all the layers of the topography of the map of, of the Psalms. So we're going to tackle Psalms with the two in the number all the way through Psalm 82. And then in September, we'll jump back into John and we'll finish John before the end of the year. 
So Psalm 2 gives us kind of this bird's eye view of where history is headed, where all of history is headed. And we each have roles. Every one of us have roles in this epic story of history. And part of this psalm's purpose is to ensure that you and I are on the right side of history. So this psalm is going to answer a question for us that I think is important for every human being to answer. It's this. Is God's rule, God's kingship, his authority, is God's rule a threat to you or a refuge for you? Is it a threat to you or is it a refuge for you? And how do you know? How do you actually answer that question objectively? If he is a threat to you right now, how do you actually transition from being threatened to enjoying the refuge of God? So that's where we're going to head today and the question that I hope to answer for us. If you've ever been at the base of a large mountain that's situated within range of an even larger mountain behind it, you've probably experienced a little bit of the phenomenon that's happening today in Psalm 2. So if you're at the foot of this mountain, you can picture it in your mind's eye, just Uh, and and there's a higher mountain just behind it, you may not even realize it because all you can see is the big mountain right in front of you. But if you were to climb the smaller mountain, at the top of it, you'd soon realize that there's something even bigger just beyond that smaller mountain. So I had Ellie, my seven-year-old, help me in creating an illustration for this. And so you can see yourself there at the bottom of the mountain And when you look, your eyesight can only catch the very top of the mountain that you're standing at the foot of. Uh, You guys can all congratulate her great artistry, uh, maybe at the end of the gathering or something like that. But when this psalm was originally penned, the author was sitting at the base of the mountain. Um, That's a girl, and I don't think a girl authored this psalm. That was one failure of mine to tell her whether or not to draw a girl or a boy. But anyway, so um, pretend that that little girl there is the psalmist. Um, he's sitting at the base of this theoretical front mountain. He didn't know what lay beyond what he could see. There's something grander, something taller, something better that laid beyond his perspective, even though at this point when he was writing it, he had no idea it was even there. And so just because there was a mountain beyond doesn't mean that the front mountain is useless, though. It's still glorious in its own right. It should still be climbed to observe its beauty. In fact, in some, sometimes the best way to view the next mountain is to climb the smaller mountain. So to see that grander mountain that Psalm 2 is pointing towards, we need to climb the original terrain of Psalm 2. We need to understand the immediate historical context so that we can understand its ultimate meaning for us. And so just as a lesson, sort of, in reading the Bible in general, faithfully from cover to cover, especially in the Old Testament, you should just know that every story, every poem, every law, every idea in the first half of the Bible before Jesus, it's called the Old Testament, every one of those ideas is meant to be a little mountain to scale so that you can see the bigger, more glorious mountain. And so I want to put a couple of tools in your hands today. We do this occasionally. If you're visiting today, just know that if you raise your hand for one of these tools, you are committing to write a five-page book report and have that into me by next Sunday. For all the people who have heard that joke a thousand times, thank you for laughing, even though it's probably not funny to you anymore. So I, want to, I have one tool to help you as an adult and one tool to help you as you help your kids in this endeavor. So this book is called uh, 16 Words. It's the whole message the whole message of the Bible in 16 words, and it will help you understand 
that the whole landscape of Scripture is telling one primary story, even though it's made up of a bunch of different stories. And so if you want to understand how to um, get to Jesus in the right kind of way before Jesus even shows up in the Bible, this is an excellent tool for that. So is there anyone in here who hasn't had a tool like this been given to them before? Anyone in here interested in that? You don't have to write a report. I was just kidding. But it would be good if you, actually, if you raise your hand if you actually attempted to read it. Yeah, right back there in the back. You don't have to come forward. It's okay. You can if you want. I'll leave it right here. You can grab it afterwards. And then this is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, man, that is courage right there. Well done. Um, yes. He's afraid someone's going to jump in line in front of him at the end of the gathering. So here's another tool that will help you do that faithfully from beginning to end. Is there any parent out here of uh, some young children that this would serve and help them with? The Jesus Story with Bible. Not everybody at once. Does everybody have a copy of this? Okay, I'm going to leave this up here. If you change your mind and you want it, it's all yours, okay? Anyway, so with the time remaining, let's dig in and try to, try to understand how scaling the original mountain of Psalm 2 will help us understand what's even beyond it in a more beautiful way. So most parents of young kids in here, which apparently none of you need a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, but most parents of young kids in here will remember this from the movie Frozen, which I've seen about a thousand times. Young Anna is woken up on Coronation Day, or she calls it Corneration Day, um, but it was the day that Queen Elsa was being installed as the queen there of Arendelle. There's a lot of fanfare and partying and music and 8,000 salad plates. It's a joke for you parents who have heard the soundtrack too many times. Come on. You guys don't know the 8,000 salad plates line? If you know what I'm talking about with eight... Thank you. Courtesy laughter. Again. Um, but that's what's going on here in Psalm 2. That's the context of Psalm 2. It's coronation day for some king that's in David's line. It could have been David himself, we're not sure. But this song, psalm is meant to be sung at that coronation celebration. And it would be natural for the neighboring nations to test out just what kind of metal this new king, this new leader was going to have. And this new king here in Psalm 2 wants the world to know that he isn't a king to be trifled with. Because he's been put in place by God and is going to be protected by the sovereign God. And so this is how to read this psalm at the base of the front mountain. But as we begin to climb it, we begin to see that there is something even beyond. And one of the clues that there is a next level meaning intended by God's spirit here, that there is another layer of meaning, is that it's just not possible that any earthly king could possibly fulfill the claims of this psalm. I don't know if you're like me, but I have many times been standing at the fridge using that uh, refrigerator water dispenser to fill a cup, and I get distracted from the rising level of water, whether it's talking to the dog or talking to the kids or looking for a snack in the fridge. And while you're distracted, the water spills up over the edge. The cup didn't have the capacity for all of the water that you were putting into it. That's almost what's happening here in Psalm 2. The context of this psalm spills up over the edges of human capacity. There's just no human being that could possibly fulfill what this, that could possibly hold, I should say, what this psalm projects for the king that was being installed that day in Jerusalem. The glory of verse 8 and then the fury of verse 9 cannot be accounted for in any human king. 
Look at the expanse of glory there in Psalm 2, verse 8. It says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. But then look at the violent fury in the next verse, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Man, the things that are said about this king here are far too great to be confined to any earthly king. There's something more going on here. And if that was the sort of subtle hint that wasn't so readily available to us, there's an even more explicit one in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against, here it is, his anointed. So the Hebrew word, which is what the Old Testament was written in, this psalm was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for anointed there is pronounced Mashiach. You probably guessed where, that we get our English word, Messiah, from Mashiach. So that's what the word anointed sounds like in the Hebrew. And its roots come from an ancient tradition involving the pouring of oil over someone's head. And all the, all the uh, young living and doTERRA essential oils people just perked up. I saw you. But the, the New Testament is littered with examples that confirm Jesus understood himself to be the one whom God had poured the oil over, the one who was anointed as God's Messiah. And even beyond this, these two ideas, maybe more concretely, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And we're not going to unpack all those quotes today, but they're most often directly being applied to Jesus himself. And so now that we've sort of very briefly scaled the original terrain of the original context of Psalm 2, we can begin to gather that it points to the king above all the kings, the king behind all the kings. It's clearly pointing to a greater Messiah than whatever king was being installed when this was originally written and sung. So with that in mind, let's, let's just briefly unpack this psalm from beginning to end. The first thing I'd like us to see today is that humanity rejects. Humanity rejects. It opens like this. Why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot in vain? As the author looks out over God's creation and he sees the kings and the kingdoms, he thinks, why do you resist? Why do you oppose the authority of the living God and his anointed one? Basically, he's saying, man, why do you guys even bother? The psalmist can hardly believe this lunacy. How crazy is it that men conspire together against God? And yet, this is the story of humanity. It's the story of your life, and it's the story of mine, too. Adam was the first to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden. He was pretty sure that he would be happier eating the fruit than obeying God. And so he ate. And then every man, woman, and child since has thought the same thing. Some of us implicitly, some of us more explicitly, we think, I can plot the path to happiness and wholeness and fulfillment more quickly and more efficiently than God can. So I take things into my own hands. We reject his rule in favor of our own. We do what we want. Some of us reject it more blatantly. I don't want God's rule. And so we rebel. But some of us reject it almost more righteously, more morally. I don't need God's rule. I'm a good person without it. Or maybe you can catch this in the popular lingo of the day. Ideas like, hey man, 
You do you. Live your truth. Live your life. For many in our times, the only ultimate authority is internal in each of us. If there really was a throne in my reality, it's only me that sits on it, and I am going to resist anyone that tries to take my spot in that seat. That's what's happening in verse 2. The bonds and the cords there in verse 2, if you look, refer to the way the yoke of a cart or like a, a plow was placed onto the necks of animals. So when you read bonds and cords there in verse 2, don't think prison so much as you think control. Humanity chafes under the control of God, especially under the control of God's anointed king. Much like a beast of burden chafes under the yoke, under the control of the yoke, constantly trying to shrug it off and get rid of it. That's the picture of humanity here. Humanity's primary rejection of God is seen in his unwillingness to bow under the control of the word of God. We want to do what we want to do. We want to spend where we want to spend. We want to look at what we want to look at. We want to do with Sundays what we want. We want to sleep with who we want. We want to drink as much as we want. We want to treat others however we want. As human beings, this is our story. We're all prone to wander. Maybe there's someone in here today who, who isn't quite, quite sold on Jesus in this whole Christianity thing. And maybe you don't view yourself as a rejecter of God's king because you reject the idea of a universal king in the first place. You just, you don't give it much credence. And while that may be true, I don't think that you can actually reject the idea that we all crown something or someone king of our lives. It's hardwired into each of our hearts. We all find something to be yoked under, all of us, every human being ever. You will find someone or something to adore that will be the controlling force in your life. You'll find saviors. You'll find something that makes you feel at home, that makes you feel at rest. You'll find a king that you hope will cause you to succeed, cause you to win, cause you to feel accepted and affirmed in who we are and, and what we want. I remember walking into my workplace on November 9th, 2016. This is before Trinity hired me. It was like I walked into this gigantic morgue. It was quiet. I've never experienced something like this. There were blotchy cheeks wet with tears. There were angry faces. This, their savior had been outvoted by another savior. And I, I bet if I'd have walked into another building down in the south, there may have been a different mood in there entirely. There may have been hooting and hollering and victorious joy. Their savior had defeated the other savior. But just, just look around. Did their savior solve the problems? Would the other one have fixed the problems? No, every human savior exacerbates the problem. Both buildings exemplify what is wrong with us as humanity. We set our hopes on a bunch of vain, powerless saviors. I don't care what your political persuasions are, you have to know that your candidate won't fix the mess. They can't fix the mess. Because no human leader or king could ever encompass 
could ever hold up to what we need. Our expectations and our needs swirl up over the edge of human capacity. So we should stop trying to fill that cup with human saviors. We need a king, a real king, someone to lead the way that causes us to flourish, whose enforcement of law promotes peace and enables community across cultures, across races, across the nations. And there is only one king who can fit that bill. There's just one. And it's God's king, discussed here in Psalm 2. It's the king behind the kings. It's the king beneath all the kings. It's the king of all the kings, the king just beyond the view of Psalm 2. It's Jesus. Christians, I wonder if you sense the walls of rejection closing in around you as the world seeks its peace from their little saviors. As they increasingly reject the Messiah who came to save them, so they begin to reject those of us who follow him too. When this happens, they want you. They're going to try to persuade you to think that you're the insane one, that you're the crazy one for still believing in that old myth or fairy tale. But God's word tells you a different story this morning. It says, with all due respect, that they're actually the crazy ones, that they're the insane ones that have not submitted to the good and gracious king that wants their flourishing, that loves them beyond what they could even imagine. They're the ones that are insane, rejecting God's rule. You've got to preach this constantly to yourself, or you'll begin to believe and adopt their narrative rather than God's narrative. Jesus told us, he said, don't fear the ones who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. So the psalmist is warning us of this very thing. Fear God's anointed king, not man. We need to let the brutal realism, kind of difficult truths to swallow sometimes, the brutal realism of the Bible to infect our minds and set our expectations for what we are going to encounter in, in this world that we live in. Humanity has rejected God, and they'll increasingly reject him and reject you. But, but what is so cool about this text, I think, is God's response to this. It's super encouraging. Number two this morning, God laughs. Humanity rejects, and then God laughs. God isn't phased one little bit by humanity's rejection. Instead, he laughs, and I think this is so great. There's a real comfort here, Trinity. Our mighty American politicians, terrorists with bombs strapped to their chests, global dictators, atheists, agnostics, even you and me. God is totally unimpressed. While the world struts its stuff, God sits back and can't help but LOL. He is the king in charge. When you're on social media and the outspoken critics of Christianity strut their stuff, be reminded that God isn't phased one little bit, and you don't need to be either. Let God's laughter refocus your heart. There is a certain restfulness of soul when you're within earshot of God's laughter. Stay within earshot of God's laughter. Let his truth occupy your soul and your thoughts. The outlandish bravado of our politicians, kings, and celebrities will be drowned out by the laughter of our God. Friends, if you're in Christ, you are safe. 
You are on the right side of history despite what the world crams down your throats. God is so carefree that he can laugh. He's got you despite the world's rejection of you. But he doesn't just laugh. He speaks truth into the situation. While the kings in verse 3 plot their escape from under the rule of the king, God's like, "Uh uh-uh, I already have my king. I've put him in place. You can act like he isn't the king, but in the end you'll see. The future is sure. It's not up for debate. I have my champ. Why Jesus, though? You ever asked yourself this question? Why does Jesus get that spot? What makes him so special? Why not Gandhi or Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or your favorite politician or whatever? What did Jesus do to get that seat in the rightful place of authority? Well, Paul, in the New Testament, in a, in a book called Philippians, uh, he wrote a letter to a church in Philippi, and he said this. This is why Jesus gets that seat. Though Jesus was in the form of God, meaning that he was equal to God, he was the same as God, he did not count this equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what is the result of that humiliating death? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the taller mountain, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gets the seat because he earned it in a demonstration of astounding humility in place of me and in place of you. And today, right now, as you take in that breath of oxygen, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father as God's anointed King, ruling and reigning unfazed by humanity's rejection. God laughs because he's got his king, so you can rest. Third this morning, the sun reigns. Look at the scope of the sun's rule there in verse 8. He says, God says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is a big kingdom. That is everything. But In addition to the scope of the rule, look at the force of the rule. In verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The force of his reign is fearsome. The scope of his reign is stunning. Over the centuries, many people have tried to bring the whole world under their rule. All have failed. Jesus hasn't. Jesus won't. In the end, Jesus wins, and you have to know that this morning. Jesus wins this thing, despite what it looks like now. Antifa won't win. The United Nations can't do what they've set out to do. Democrats can't make it happen. Republicans fall far short. All you independents in here feeling smug, that won't work either. Anything and anyone that attempts to usurp the throne of the living God as the solution to our problems has a dangerous fate there in verse 9. The certainty of the decrees in verse 9 should both sober us, I think, and excite us. Change is coming. 
Peace is on the way. When the reign of the sun finally touches down, God's going to rule and reign forever, and we will be safe. This should infect our worldview. It should color the way that we watch and read the news, the way that we look at politics, and even mourn the broken condition of our world. We may not always know quite what to make of our current events as we observe them. I'm with you. But we can know ultimately where history is headed. God's decree here about the kingship of his son in Psalm 2 should control and shape all that we view about history. And it should influence how we grapple with how messed up, the, how messed up things are right now in our world. By keeping the long view of the reign of the Son of God, and by preaching this to one another, hey man, don't forget, it will not always be this way. Though the wrong seems often so strong, God is still the ruler. He's still the ruler. It's our Father's world. Preaching this to one another can help us stay together and stay sane while we wait for God's justice to rain down through his Son. I wonder, does, does the violence of verse 9 there disturb you at all? I can totally empathize with you if it does. I understand that impulse. But even this violence, I think, is actually a loving violence. It's a destruction to anything or anyone that stands in the way of God's people finding their final refuge in a person that will ultimately satisfy all the longings of their hearts. So God's love for you does turn violent sometimes. It turns violent, violent when it comes to defending you. Much like you parents would do, if someone threatens the safety of your kids, you wouldn't dream of letting that go quietly. No way. Those are your kids. You'd unleash your fury to protect those kids that you love. You'd be violent, and it would be a violent love. The same with our king. He's violent to protect us. Humanity rejects, God laughs, the sun reigns, and then finally today, the humble are safe. So as the psalmist closes out here, he extends an invitation to the kings and to all of us, really. I think God's mercy is such a powerful picture here. The same kings that plot against God can receive mercy from God. He implores them, come to me for refuge. All the power in all the world, all the accolades, all the prestige can't buy you safety from your sins. It's the same for all of us, friends. No achievement can earn, no achievement we earn can fix our ultimate problem. We've angered God with our actions, our addictions, our hatred, our bigotry, our racism, our whatever. And if we don't find some place to hide from God's just anger, look, maybe, maybe anger frightens you a little bit about this picture of God. But I think you would want the same of any just, uh, of, of, of any, uh, just court in our, in, our, in our land. You would want anything of a, you would want the same thing of a judge in, our, in, in America. You would want a judge to judge accurately and justly. And God is no, is no different, except he's perfectly just in all that he does. And so the anger that he displays at sin and at sinners is perfectly just, just like we would want a judge in our courts to do. We wouldn't want judges in our courts to let someone who has broken the law off the hook. 
And so we need to find some place to hide from the anger of God, or else we're going to bear the full brunt of our failures. So where do we find this refuge from the violence that you see there in verse 9? We find it at the feet of the Son of God. You see it there in verse 12. Kiss the Son. It's a sign of submission. It's a recognition of his rule. In ancient times, a subject would kiss the king's ring, ring as a sign of submission and reverence to him. Guys, think back to that wedding day, the moment that that pastor looked you in the eye and said, kiss the bride. You leaned in and you were, in a sense, in a sense bringing yourself under the exclusive love of that woman and of no other woman. You were saying, okay, that's it. With this kiss, I officially and publicly declare my love for this woman and for this woman alone. I surrender to her love, and I surrender to be hers alone. That's what it means to kiss the son here in verse 12. To surrender to his love and to his alone. To publicly and officially and joyfully come under his loving reign. But here's the deal. We can't kiss with caveats. If right before you kissed your bride, right? Can you imagine this? You said, I am publicly committing to this woman. But there's that one lady in the back corner, right back there, that I kind of still have this deep affection for, and I just can't shake the romantic feelings. So I'll kiss my bride, but I'm not promising to fully surrender to this woman. Man, any woman that was standing across from that man ought to walk out of the building, obviously. The very moment you say that, you've just demonstrated that that other woman is actually the king of your love, not your bride. Your wedding kiss means nothing then. So to kiss the son means that you reject any other kings, any other controlling loves. We don't get to say, I'll kiss the son as long as I get to keep doing me. What I want, when I want. That's exactly like the groom who kisses with caveats. You kiss your bride and you kiss the son because you're ravished in their beauty and you want none other. You're intoxicated by their love and you br gladly bring yourself under that love. What's the incentive here? Why kiss the son? I think there are two reasons. Verse 12, there's a danger to avoid. There is legit danger to avoid. And the only way you avoid it is by kissing the son. Verse 12, lest the son become angry and you perish. We've talked about it already. God is angry with our sin. So there's danger to avoid, but it's not just danger. There's actually delight to experience. There is a safe place of refuge. Look at the end of verse 12. God is delighted with his kids. There's refuge. So these are the two primary reasons for you running to Jesus this morning, whether it's for the first time, your first kiss with the son, or whether it's for the millionth time to come back to Jesus. Here they are. He hates sin and destroys sinners. So come under his refuge. And second, he loves his kids and will bless their allegiance with refuge forever. Refuge. Refuge is safety. What do you get refuge from? What do you get safety from? And here's, here's the thick irony that we'll close with today. You actually need to be saved from God by God. You have to be saved from God by God. Kiss the Son lest He be angry with you. The only refuge from God is provided is the refuge provided in God through His anointed King. 
So there is no refuge from God without surrendering to his king, Jesus. You and me, we cannot create this refuge. You cannot sustain refuge. You cannot save yourself from God's wrath by fixing yourself up, by being a self-help person. So as we close today, I wonder if you're treating Jesus as the king of your life. Are you bucking his rule or embracing it? Are you chafing under it? Are you kissing with caveats? Or maybe, maybe it's a little more subtle for you. Maybe for you, you love the idea of Jesus, but Jesus isn't so much king as he is consultant for your life. Some of you are bitter, and you refuse to let it go. You just play that situation over and over and over in your mind. You're just like the kings who are trying to usurp authority. Jesus says, don't be bitter. Bring me your bitterness. But you say, nah, I'd rather keep it. Jesus is just your consultant. He's not your king. Some of you maybe are trying to use sex in ways that God didn't intend it to be used, as a covenant commitment between spouses. You like Jesus, and you come on Sundays, but he's more consultant than king when it comes right down to it. Some of us are so greedy with our money. We spend and spend and spend on ourselves. We never bless others with the blessings God has given to us. We don't give to the church or to the mission. You're acting like Jesus isn't king of your finances. He's just a consultant. And when it makes sense to you, you'll submit to him as king. But you don't treat a king like you do a consultant. If you're saying to Jesus, I'll obey if, I'll obey if, I'll give if, I'll let the go of the bitterness if, if that's the posture of your heart, you're not actually obeying. You're just consulting, and then you're making your own decisions. And at that point, who's the king? You are. Jesus won't stand for this. He is the king of kings, not for nothing. He is the king. He's not your consultant. And so let me encourage you not to treat him that way. And so the question of the psalm is this. Will there be one who is given ultimate authority, final authority over all creation, over everything under the heavens and the earth? And the resounding answer of this psalm is yes. Jesus Christ, King of kings, God's anointed one. But the question for you is this. Will there be one who is given ultimate authority, final authority over you? I hope the answer is a resounding yes, Jesus Christ. King of kings, God's anointed one. You know, when this psalm was originally penned, it was written to celebrate, like we talked about, a new king of Israel. But many years after that king was celebrated, and many of those kings were dead and gone, there'd be another king, born in the filth of a borrowed stable. And another group of people would plot in vain, just like the kings there in Psalm 2. They'd threaten him, they'd conspire against him, they'd rage against him. They'd vainly plot the destruction of one of David's descendants. They'd plan his betrayal and his eventual death in secret, but it would all be in vain because though it appeared all was lost when Jesus hung on that cross and was put in that grave, death was losing the victory in those moments. Death eventually lost, and so had sin and its victory over you and me. God's king has won, and Jesus shall reign forever. Kiss his feet this morning. Come under his loving reign. Enjoy the love of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son. Thank him for his refuge and for his mercy. Praise him that because of the cross, we don't have to seek refuge from God. 
We can seek it in God, through Jesus. Because of the cross, we don't have to seek refuge from God's wrath, but instead this morning, will you seek it in the King? Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you that hundreds of years before Christ even came, you were whispering about the coming Messiah. Man, that just, that just strengthens our faith this morning, knowing that you knew it was going to happen well before it happened. So we thank you for Psalms like Psalm 2 that strengthen our faith and give us hope for the story of history to be told in a way that honors God and that brings the king to sit on his rightful throne. I pray that we would be climbing, scaling the mountains of the Old Testament to see the gigantic mountain of Jesus in the new. In Jesus' name, amen.